You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. Like anything I write, Claire, you know, it all comes from, well, it all comes from 12-year-old Trent. It all comes from 12-year-old Trent. Hello, beautiful human beings. I'm Claire Bowditch and I'm thrilled to be here for this very, very special event. We begin today by making a specially timely acknowledgement, but an always acknowledgement, that we stand on the lands of the Rwandri, Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We tell stories on this land that they have been the custodians of. We're honoured and grateful to be here. And I pay my respects to all First Nations people here, to elders past and present. With that, I will take my seat and just say, how exciting is this, you guys? We're here on the occasion of having a chat with your mate and mine, Trent Dalton. We're going to speak about this new book, Lola in the Mirror. What a stunning cover. What a stunning achievement. I'm going to read some formal notes so that you know who you're speaking with. Trent Dalton is an international best-selling author of... Thank you, very good. And did Boy Swallow Universe break all the records and sell 1.2 million copies along with the other books? Yes. Is Boy Swallow's Universe the kind of thing that should be made into a movie slash telly series? Yes. We'll talk about that with Trent Dalton tonight. Um, of course, that was the debut novel that broke all the records and I was lucky to be there on the night of my first RVA Awards watching Trent collect the awards and speak about his life and his books. And it's one of the reasons I so wanted to be here today with you to ask more questions. Of course, after that came All Our, Sh- all Our Shimmering Skies, which I loved, read during COVID and love stories. Um, Boy, Swallows, Boy Swallows Universe has been adapted into actually a theatrical production um, and it is shortly going to be a Netflix uh, series, just saying. But we're here to talk about this new book, amongst other things, Lola in the Mirror. Now, before all of that success, you might know that Trent Dalton was a journalist. He spoke to people about their lives, about social issues. He did that for almost two decades. That was his joy. And all along the way, he was collecting stories and processing his own too. This next book, uh, this new book is about the story of or the power of hope. In between, we're also talking about the real-life issues of poverty and violence and homelessness. Has anyone had a chance to read it yet? Right, so in the end, right, what happens? (laughs) Actually, we should probably just ask Trent Dalton to come in and break our hearts with the story of it. Would you please welcome Trent Dalton? Out the have a seat, Trent. We're so excited to have you here. Um, that intro was worth the price of entry alone. Thanks, mate. Claire Bowditch, ladies and gentlemen, is in the house. Get out. <laughs> you all look so beautiful. Thank you so much for coming. Trent Dalton, let's just get right down to it. What's with mirrors? 
No, really. Oh, oh. What's with mirrors and you? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> that's great. Um, all right, I'll go there. Um, yeah, when I was 12, Claire, I um, was being raised by this beautiful guy, my dad. Uh, he was raising four boys in a uh, housing commission shitbox in Brisbane. Mum was going through some tough times across town. Um, and when I looked in the mirror, for some reason, I wanted to be Daniel Day-Lewis. And I thought I was literally going to become... I would grow up and look like Daniel Day-Lewis in Last of the Mohicans. Wow. And Winona Ryder would go out with me. Wow. And Wally Lewis would be my best friend. <laughs> um, Eddie Vedder would come over and listen to records with me. Mm. Uh, and then, but what happened, uh, Claire, honestly, I reckon I turned about 15 um, and reality kicked in. And uh, I started to not like what I saw in the mirror. Um, I saw reality that um, just outside my bedroom there were holes in the wall, in the fibro walls, and there were, there were bloodstains near those holes. And, um, I, I, you know, uh, mum was living with a monster. Mum was living with a, a freaking monster across town. Um, and I, I, got a, I got myself an American baseball cap, Claire, and I just p pulled it over my forehead. And I, I just stopped looking at myself because I didn't like the past that I saw and I didn't like the present and I saw zero future. And, uh, and if I said anything to myself, it was like three words which were like, fuck them all. <laughs> she, whoever, she doesn't have a 17-year-old son or maybe she does. <laughs> and, yep. uh, yeah, you know, and, 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 and it really stayed with me that, that, that potential of, of not actually looking into the mirror at one stage in my life and going, oh, hang on, there's, there's stuff in your future, mate. Like, you're going to come to Melbourne one day and talk to Claire Bowditch on stage at the Melbourne Town Hall. Like, you're not seeing that, you know, you're just not seeing that. And I wanted to write a story about someone who, who gets assistance, who gets assistance is what if, what if you looked in the mirror and you were lucky enough to have this girl called Lola who does tell you every truth about your past and every truth about your present, but she gives you some dreams to hold on to as well. And I thought that could be a really cool story. And so like anything I write, Claire, you know, it all comes from, well, it all comes from 12-year-old Trent. It all comes from 12-year-old Trent. Like I can go back to that house in Bracken Ridge and, my brother Jesse and I shared, it, it, the mirror was donated by Lifeline and it was like a mirror that Elizabeth Taylor would have had. <laughs> Having just watched Cleopatra again Did last you? night. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah, Yep. And it was, it, we just, it, two boys in Brackenridge shouldn't have had this mirror, but I, I swear that was it. And then, and then what happened, I'll, I'll cut it short, January 10, 2000, I met my, my, the, the woman who I married and her name's Fiona and and I had a job as a journalist and I started running after her at train stations. I started combing my hair. I started wearing good clothes and I started smiling into the mirror again because I friggin' had love and I liked what I saw in the mirror. I'm going to ask you later. Oh, you're the best. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be the best night, I promise. The title Lola in the Mirror sounds like a children's story. This is anything but... Tell us a little about those 
nearly two decades of talking with people and why this story came to be told and where the basis of it was for you? Yeah, two really big things happened to me and they're all journalistic, journalism-based. You know, as you know, you know, what you do on a daily basis is extraordinary. You know, the, the, the things you can get from just talking to people and shutting the hell up and listening. I went to, I got invited to talk at an academic night at a very well-known university in Queensland and, uh, and I was just talking about journalism and uh, they took me out for dinner. There was like 10 academics and they took me out for dinner and I, I'll never forget this. This happens regularly, does it? This kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't really. Like, that's why I took them up on it. I'm like, you want to take, this is like pre-Boyce Wallace University. that's the joy of being, that's why you do the kind of job you do because you get these opportunities. And then, you know, you, got to, you get to do these ridiculous things. I go out with 10 academics not being the academic and listen and watch. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Duh. Yeah. But Imagine just sitting around <laughs> listening to 10 academics talk. Um, it was a lovely night. And, uh, but I never forget, one of the friends of an academic, uh, academic was, you know, we finished our meals and everyone was having drinks. And this woman came up, Claire, and I haven't spoken about this. This is sort of just between us, Melbourne. Um, but no, it's, it's all good. I'm, I'm really proud of where it comes from. But this, this woman said... Um, Trent, I'm thinking about kidnapping my own kids. And I'm like, what? What did you just say? And she was in a custody battle with a man she didn't trust. And she was terrified about what was going to happen to her kids. And I just said, oh, you know, I mean, I wish you every comfort. I don't know. I think she wanted me to write about the situation as a journo. And it just always stayed with me. And then like two months later... This woman was on the news, on the run. She did it. She did it, Claire. Like, and it freaking shocked the hell out of me. And I got a letter about a month after she went, like national news, this woman went. And I got a letter from Thai, postmarked Thailand, um, just letting you know the kids are okay. Yeah, no shit. Like, this is what can happen as a journo. So that was one thing, right? And this idea of, and she, she went for like six months and she, she went to prison, like she, she got put in prison, um, but, but she lasted about six months going around Australia, like with these kids. And I'm like, what, a, what an incredible journey. Um, and then, and then well, well, so that's in the back of my mind, the, the some 10 years that I um, did covering uh, a homeless shelter called Third Space up in my home city, Brisbane, Third Space. Melbourne has heaps of them, wonderful, filled with wonderful, extraordinary members of the community. Um, behind, you know, Bain Marie's helping the homeless and people and just these wonderful shelters. And Brisbane's one is iconic. And uh, this place, Third Space, has been serving 3,500 meals a month for the past 50 years. And I just did a journalistic kind of Michael Apted 7-Up type thing where I'd, I'd duck in every two years or so. And I did this book that no one read called um, Detours. Um, it was literally made by the shelter and the money we made went back to the 20 people who told their stories within it. And what Detours was all about was interviewing uh, the regulars of that shelter and asking them to tell me that one moment that set them on the path to homelessness. And, and we were actively trying to... Uh, realign people's thinking on homelessness and trying to remind them it's not always drugs and drink 
and drugs and drink are, will keep you on the street, but they won't always put you on the street. And all of these stories, Claire, were related to um, childhood trauma. Uh, they related to acute misfortune that any one of us could endure. Um, and um, they related to mental health issues. And I just put it all in there. And, uh, and I remember I was at the launch night in Brisbane and this one woman, Mary, came up who was one of the regulars and our, you know, our governor general did a big speech and, and, uh, and it was beautiful and it was really worthy. But then Mary came up to me and she's just this salty, like amazing kind of, she had this sugar addiction, like no teeth. And, uh, and she just goes like, what the fuck's wrong with you? You're so, you're so stuck in the darkness. Um, wh why don't you tell the love stories that happen here? Wh why don't you tell the world about the, the moments of community and hope and, um, and, and love that is found in strangers and, and how you don't necessarily need four walls and a rooftop to have a family. And I was like, that's cool. And I, so I put all of that into Lola in the Mirror. That's where all that truth comes in. One of the things I've heard you say before is that pretty much at the heart of it, most of what you're writing is a love story, oh, is yeah. knowing about the concept of love and that being the thing that has the only chance to change anything in the world. And that sounds idealistic, but, but I think as readers, we get a sense of that. When I read your characters, there seems to be no sense of judgment, oh. uh, which is so often associated with, um, you know, the stories from the edges, from the underbellies and so yeah. on. 17 years as a journalist, how did you get people to talk to you and trust you? Oh, that's a great question, Claire. I'm... You should see me when I f turn up to their front doors. Like, I'm a puppy dog. Tell like, us. I'm, yeah. like, I'm like, hi, my name's Trent. I'm sorry I have landed on your doorstep, but I know uh, you've been through hell. And if you can see in my eyes that, that uh, I am telling the truth when I tell you that I know what that's like, so, so I promise you, um, I can't guarantee you, you um, that this will solve your situation, but I friggin' promise you, you will, I will leave you better than I found you. And my experience with me will, will, will not be one you regret because that, that was the thing that always kept me up at night. And I did it so many times, Claire, just coming in and just going, I'm listening. I am not going away for like four hours. And I would just go, yeah, like I'm talking puppy dog, like, what, right, right. And it's just like, you know, sometimes you need to pay a psychologist for that kind of attentive kind of listening but it was what I was trying to do, Claire, was trying to work out um, the motivations of some of the people who had the demons in my life, you know. So that's why I was so interested to go into those homes in the suburbs and why um, I sometimes did get them to tell me stories because I think they sensed it, you know. And then, and then in more recent times, like, I'm a freaking open book. Like, they read Boy Swallows Universe now and go... Oh shit, man! I'll tell you. Oh yeah, you're the, you're the kid with the red phone and stuff, you know. And it's and it becomes this really beautiful storytelling thing. So, you know, it's the beauty of um, listening, and the beauty of that journalism road led to all of that stuff and gave me the confidence to tell Boy Swallows Universe, and then that has then even enabled me to go deeper with those same people. I was chatting uh, or writing back and forth to a friend recently and stumbled upon this realisation that in life 
to have been loved by your family is an incredible thing. And despite and with everything that's happened, uh, the complexity of the family that you grew up in and shared something, so much of it with us, um, there was love. There was a great deal of love between you and your older brothers, your father, your mother. And it seems to me that it's one of the only liabilities of being a sort of half-memoirist person who tells stories from your own life is the fact that your family loves you. <laughs> there can be this albatross that hangs around people's necks. I know that many of you are storytellers and you have personal stories you want to tell and you don't know how to do it without hurting people and you wrestle with that. And so, Trent, um, from what I understand, or you tell us about... Uh, that struggle of telling stories that are from your real life and being able to sit in a place where it's the right thing to do, but there's a cost also. Oh, man. Um, oh, okay. Can I tell you something really, really deep? And because there's a girl in, there's a young woman, there's a woman here, she's not a girl anymore. She was a girl always in my life and she's the incredibly beautiful daughter of my oldest brother. And I'm going to tell a story, but I'm going to, I want her to know this story because it taps into what you're talking about. Here's, here's, here's the power of what you're talking about, Claire. And this is everything that where Lola in the Mirror comes from, okay? It's a bit dark, but I want to get to the light. Um, my mum my in the 1990s, Claire, like she had this monster and uh, she, she escaped one night and uh, she ran to a Telstra phone box um, she went into that phone box and was dialing triple zero because she wanted to escape this giant of a man who pretended to love her but was nothing but a monster. And, uh, and just as she was about to make that call, uh, the monster burst into the phone box and he, he strangled her. And he, um, he kind of left her for dead on concrete in the Telstra phone box. And... There was only one thing that made my mum stand to her feet because she was done, mate. Like, she was just done. And it was a vision she had in her head of her four sons. These, my three older brothers and myself. And, and that made her get up, dial triple O. The police came and uh, they, they said to her... Um, you have exactly two options. Uh, you can be homeless or you can go back to the monster. And they advised her to find strategies to not aggravate the monster. I'm sorry to even... Yeah, it's, a, it's terrible. Then uh, this beautiful older brother of mine, he becomes a man, Claire, and he says, I'm going to get her out. I'm going to freaking free her from the monster. <laughs> his his freaking beautiful daughter's in the house, you know, and this fucking guy is so fucking brave, Claire. We go, all four boys, this freaking inner city Brisbane, you know, fancy home. Joel knocks on the door. You're the baby. I'm the kid. I'm, I'm you know, I'm 12. He, you know, 12, 14, 16, 17. And, uh, and, and Joel's like, Mum, now's the time. Monster runs at Joel. We're standing in the front yard. This incredibly brave young man 
gets low, drives up with his legs and tackles this monster onto the front yard. And the beautiful thing about having four sons, it means one son per limb. <laughs> oh, I love you. Thank you. Mm. You're the freaking best. Trent, thanks for sharing. Thanks for sharing these things with us. And we know that when we speak about them, they're big. We mentioned it's not a children's story, and I'm going to go back to it. But I just want to make that point that if there is anyone in this room who's feeling it, please take care of yourself in this moment. Leave. I'll be giving you resources at the end, places you can go. But if you need a moment, take a moment. And also I have a feeling that this is a Melbourne room where if you're upset, turn to the person next to you. If they're a fuckwit, turn to the other person. <laughs> Sorry, Trent, back over to you. Hey, thanks, Claire. No, I'm, yeah, thank you so much. And I, I yeah, thank you. Um, Mum goes to a DV shelter. The frigging community, you know, this is, this is just, we can never forget the power of, of wrapping your arms around strangers, man. Like, that night, my mum had nowhere to go. We couldn't take it back to our place. Like, everything was still weird between mum and dad and... Mum goes to a DV shelter, right? Do you know what, everyone knows what DV is perhaps, but domestic Dom violence, it's the code for it. And if you don't, thank God you don't. But. Domestic violence shelter, you know, these places in the suburbs, these two-level brick places where mums gather with five-year-old children for protection. And she goes off there and, you know, run by five women who just give a shit, you know. And uh, she goes off there. But here's the thing about what you're saying, right? of what you're saying, Claire, about love. Here's the thing. This is, you want to know anything about anything I write for the rest of my life? It's this moment. And, and that daughter of this beautiful man who's in the house should know this. Um, I'm, the Dalton boys are catching the train home. And, and I just, it's all too much, right? Like, I just start freaking bursting out in tears. And I'm just, like, fucking sobbing. Because, like, I always did that. And I was always the one who cried because, like, I'm definitely the softest of those four boys. It's and a, then it's a baby's privilege, mate. <laughs> it's true, hey, it's true. And instantly, my oldest brother Joel tells me a joke, <laughs> and instantly, I'm not crying anymore. Yeah. I'm laughing, and that is the greatest act of love. And that feeling stayed with me until I was 38 years old and terrified of telling the world about that stuff. But I had to tell that stuff so I could tell the world about Joel. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. But thank you so much. That, that's effing awkward, you know. That's awkward for mum. That's awkward for Joel, Ben and Jesse. And I love those boys so much. They were so proud, but it's so weird for them, you know? And, and it's, it's an ongoing act of love that, that they say, well, that's how Trent processes it. And better that, because we know Trent would just dive into a bourbon bottle anytime if he didn't have this freaking thing called words that he just gets to process it through. And it's, it's, your question is unbelievably profound, Claire. Like, it's such a beautiful question because it, it's, it's everything I've been thinking for five years. Do you or do you not uh, source your art in pain? And I believe that's, if you have it, 
then that's exactly where you should get it from. There is a difference between uh, mining pain for the purpose of telling a story and mining processing pain and telling a story that is difficult and hard and yet somehow we come out at the end feeling hopeful, Trent. So that's the feeling that many people speak of when they read your writing. This story was inspired by one of the most intimate and confronting things we earthlings do each and every day. So I read Looking in the Mirror, that still an illuminating moment when we see all of our irretrievable past and all of our tricky present and all of our possible futures. Talk to us about what you can uh, in this book about the various questions, artistic challenges, and the concept of monsters that goes on in this book. Yeah, so it all stems from that stuff I'm telling you about. So it's, it's, it's the girl finds it, the girl at the heart of the book, she's a 17-year-old homeless girl. She's been on the run with her mum across Australia for 17 years. Um, they found themselves a home. They found themselves love in a, within a homeless community. One of the hundred, you know, they become two of the 120,000 plus people who sleep rough tonight in this beautiful country of ours. Um, they have been driven out through a growing reason for women in particular to become homeless, domestic violence. Um, but the mum has told the daughter um, she can never know her name because it's dangerous. It's dangerous and this is true. This is true. Like you, you're on the run. You better not be telling your eight-year-old daughter too much about her past because it will slip to the wrong people and certain officers will be around any time um, to come take you away and split the very thing that you need to survive, love. And, uh, um, and so I wanted to deal with um, identity. I wanted to deal with this thing of when we all look in the mirror. You know, have you guys ever done that where you... <laughs> You know, we clearly we give it approximately two minutes thought every day when you're just quickly brushing your hair or you're doing your lippy or whatever, and you have these fleeting moments of profundity. Like you, you see deep into yourself, and you're like, "Who am I? Who is this person? Like, how the hell did I get here?" And that's interspersed with there's something on my nose, and Jesus Christ, <laughs> you know, it's that's so true. But it is bizarre. It's all there in that little microcosm of moments. Do you ever do that? Like, do you I have don't. a busy mind where you're looking in the mirror and you're like, okay, musician, journalist, mum, you know. Look, what, you I, know. Do, I do remember watching a friend, a really good friend, a housemate, when she would do her makeup and it was like she was a very calm and relaxed person but when I'd sort of stand next to her at the bathroom sink and she'd be doing her makeup, she would talk to herself and her eyes would change and I could hear her brain working oh, on, wow. in that conversation uh, in the mirror and the way she would just put on her makeup and so on. So I think when I look in a mirror, I really try not to think too much because I could, oh, I could... Um, oh, you might get stuck yeah. there. For, yeah. But occasionally, yeah, you get that profound moment where you're like, oh, God, like you said, who am I? How did I get there, here? What the hell's that? You know, in, in, hair on the chin. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really. Oh, well, on the street, right, there's not a lot of mirrors. You're, you're And... And identity becomes a huge issue. In, in third space, there was a dedicated mm -hmm. officer whose sole job was finding people um, access to their own identity, like literally working with them to prove their existence. Because some of the first things you lose among love 
and shelter and uh, financial security is yourself. Like literally, you lose your ID, you know, and it was, and that officer doesn't work there anymore. Funding was dropped. So like they're actively trying to get an officer now back at that shelter just to help people go to social services and, and prove who they are, you know, and I thought that's so interesting. So if you already were feeling invisible, it's like the nation isn't ready to recognize you as visible, you know, and, and so the girl in my book, she's, she started to, she's, feel, she's felt so invisible that she's actually starting to believe or trick her mind into believing that she has the powers of invisibility. And, and that can be a burden um, as much as it can be a gift. But also, I just want to remind you, it's a real love story and there's so much hope. You might really appreciate it when a handsome boy comes along and sees you, sees you, you know, and it's like, that's a cool start for a love story. Trent Dalton, you've spoken about the relationship between magical thinking, a common reaction of children who have had a traumatic event and have needed to survive at some point mm. and have had to create stories or uh, realities that allow them to survive in that moment. It's something that was famously talked about by Joan Didion, but it's a mm. psychological term that's well known. And for children who go through trauma, um, and I speak from my own experience, often there's a part of you that's frozen in that time and you never quite um, let go of it and there are handy things about that and there are challenging things about that. But what most of us who've gone through that and have a touch of uh, magical thinking in us don't ever have to do is a thing that you were recently asked to do, which is to return to your childhood home oh. as it was oh. when those things were occurring. Oh, wow. Please talk to us a little about the making of um, Boy Swallows Universe as a Netflix series and what that's been like for you. Oh, Claire, you're amazing. Thank you. Thank you for even going there. Um, there's someone really special here tonight, Claire. Let's raise a glass to them. Special person. There's a young man named Felix Cameron. Felix, are you in the house? Yes. Oh, there he is. Hi, Felix. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, Felix is playing Eli Bell in the Netflix television series. I love you, Felix. And I love your family, Shani, Cole, Tarquin, Sadie. Um, He's good with names, isn't he? Uh, jeez. They're unf oh, jeez. Oh, oh. <laughs> Stand up, brother. Oh, hello. Stand nice to up, meet boy. You, mate. There he is. Good to meet you, Felix. Love you, man. Um, Thank you. Michelle McGay. That was a was bit of the... a shock, wasn't it? Are you okay? That was. I'm sorry, Felix. I'm... Get used to it, Felix. It's going to happen a little bit. <laughs> All he wants to be is the greatest cricketer in Australia because he might well be. Fair enough. We make good bats. But here. he happens I'm... to be also maybe one of the greatest actors. <laughs> so it's he's got a bit of a choice to make. You're not on your own. It's okay. So Michelle McGay is this art director, Claire. She worked on The Matrix. And, uh, and they hired her for, for Boy Swallows Universe. She Did called... anyone just hear that? Matrix. Oh, the Matrix, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's surreal, isn't oh, it? It's so it's already it's, level upon it's level. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable. She, she phones up and she says, Hello, Trent. <laughs> <laughs> She's an Aussie, but yeah, that's oh, so true. Right. No, 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 G'day, no, no. Trent. <laughs> no, there was a bit Michelle. of that. A, no, no, not with her, but yeah, I love that. I've had that before, but yeah, yeah. Um, she phones up. <laughs> I'm turning into my mother, sorry. I love it. 
we're all we're all turning into our mums and dads. Um, she calls up. She just goes, "I need to go to the house." Oh shit! Okay, I've got to tell you some quick funny yeah. stories. Okay, so she goes, "I want to know everything. I'm going to recreate this to infinite detail." Right? Brisbane in detail. Bri- Bri- I want I want to step. I am going to spend the next six months getting into your memory of 1985. Right? And so I go, all right, why don't you come up and we'll do the Boy Swallows universe, you know, hits and misses. And, uh, and, uh, and so the first thing we do, we go out to the edge of Brisbane, this place called Ipswich, and uh, where, I, where I kind of, where that, if you remember that book, there's, there's a little, it's a shit box of a house, but inside there's all these beautiful furnishings because, you know, like, and this is in truth, like we were raised by this guy who was a heroin dealer and my mum fell in love with this guy who later went away for 10 years. And, Monster. And, and he, he um, we, we turn up at this house, right? We go to this house, Claire. And, <laughs> and I'm just pointing at it like I'm like, oh, that, that's the house. That's the one I was writing about. And she's like, do you think I could, do you think I could go inside? And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, it's a bit awkward for the people living there, but look, we'll see how we go. <laughs> we hop out of the car and honestly, there's this pit bull. This pit bull comes out. And it just starts Aren't approaching us unchained, like massive pit bull, like one of those big stocky ones that look like David Boone and, and, and it's just coming at you and, and, uh, and, and it's just unchained. And I'm, I'm in front of Michelle and I'm going, oh, we should step back, step back to the car. And this man comes out, <laughs> this man comes out and he goes, oi, fighter, fighter. <laughs> the dog's name was Fighter. <laughs> Fucking get over it. Chains the dog up, and I go, mate, I'm so sorry to bother you. My name's Trent Dalton. My brothers and I grew up in this house for a bit when we were kids. I wrote a book about this place um, called Boy Swallows Universe, and he goes, I know who you are. Come on in. (laughs) Incredibly beautiful guy, right? Incredibly beautiful guy. He goes, you want to see the secret room? No shit. Michelle loses her shit. And we get down on our hands and knees, and he points down. Like, it's just a, you know, it's one of those stump, you know, you can get down and see underneath. It's one of those, like, houses on stumps, and, uh, like, low stumps. We get down, he goes, there it is, and there, there it was. There was the freaking brick built-in thing that this kind of guy that I based Lyle, the character of Lyle on, right? Um, he built that um, in case the cops came, and, you know, he had a place to go, a place to escape, and it was down there that Joel first discovered it and then he told us, come and have a look at this. And we all slide into this room and we see this freaking nothing but a rotary dial red telephone. Completely blew my mind. Um, I became a writer in that moment. And Michelle's just losing her mind. She's like, oh my God. And so Claire, she recreates that house in a place called Beanley. They, they buy a house, right? And they proceed to recreate it. And then they go, hey, Trent and Fiona, my wife Fiona, wouldn't you like to come out and come on to a day on set? Were you go, excited at that point or were you, like, was, a, were, and, were you that, anxious about at it? At that point, Claire, I was like, this is going to be the greatest day of my life. This is going to be amazing, stepping back into my memory, you know, or stepping, stepping into a book, you know, stepping out. So, you know, I, I amplified everything. It was, like, Boyce Wallace Universe is totally semi-autobiographical and it's sort of... That book is everything that I wished I could have done. You know, Eli does everything I never got to do, you know. And, and you know, but certain men, it comes from a place as, you know, I'm bloody nine and you're in Brackenridge and you're, you know, mum's not there for Christmas. And I was like, I sure as shit would have loved to have busted into Boggo Road Women's to see her. 
and that's real. You know, that that's comes from an absolute truth. Michelle's created this home, Claire. I'm telling you. So we get up, Fee and I, we get out of the car, we walk in, people are, oh, hey, this is about to be amazing for you. And I walk in, walk up the porch, I turn left, and this beautiful young actor, Felix Cameron, he's wearing the same sky blue uniform that I wore at school. He's the same um, build as me, you know, like just always punching above his weight, you know, just, and, and he's there with his brother, right? And, and this kid, Lee, who plays Gus, he looks exactly like my brother, Ben. And, and, and I'm just like, what is going on? And there's Phoebe Tonkin playing um, Frankie Bell, who was just this absolute avatar for my mum. At what point did you become non-verbal in this situation? Totally, non-verbal. And then I walked yeah. slowly to that beautiful boy, that beautiful young man that he's become now, and I just, Claire, I grabbed him and I started crying and I just grabbed Felix. Poor Felix was trying to do a scene. Like, tra Travis Fimmel was over there. Travis freaking Fimmel, like, like Vikings dude. He's just there. I haven't even said hello to him. I just walked straight to Felix and just hugged him. I went, and I said, I don't know why I said this, and I think I was speaking to my freaking 12-year-old self, and I said, um, are you okay? Are you, like, are you good? Mm -hmm. And that beautiful young man, he's just like, he smiles. He's got this beautiful smile. Like, if you ever get to see that kid up close, guys, he's just got heart. Like, he's just all heart, and he just smiles, and he's like, he's consoling me. He's like, yeah. I got this now. One day I, he'll... I got this. <laughs> yeah. One day Felix will be up on stage. Yeah, Felix, well done. Up on but, stage talking about the first time he... The odd first time he met Uncle Trent, you know, like... <laughs> but how oh. wonder... You know, how, like, how extraordinary to have that simpatico quickly. And, oh, and Claire, it just went on from there. Mm -hmm. And I just, mm -hmm. you know, I got to hang out with Felix on a couple of days and, and you know, and then, and then they're suddenly, they're doing the scenes where Simon Baker, Simon Baker, right, who's taken a massive glow down. A few people in the room who have a crush on Simon oh, Baker. Oh, really? I mean, Anyone, is, yeah, Simon yeah. Baker, he's like, I'm telling you, you can glow that man down as much as you like. He's still the most handsome mofo in Brisbane when he's filming. Unbelievable. So there, were, there, were these, there was these four mums, they would gather in Wavell Heights where they're recreating the Bracken Ridge House when the boys go over across town, right? They filmed in this place called Wavell Heights and these four mums would, every afternoon, <laughs> they would get their garden chairs. I swear to God, they would get their garden chairs. Felix, this is true. Hey? They, would, they, would, they would get their garden chairs and, and they would set them up around five o'clock and they'd pour a pink gin and they'd Brilliant. just sit and watch Simon Baker walk back and forth into and this house. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? And it was just surreal things like that. And like that guy just, I cannot wait for you guys to see this show. That guy's acting his socks off. He's unbelievable. We can't wait either. We've yeah. all got it on up next, but it hasn't even been announced yet. So yeah. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, one of the themes that comes through everything that you speak about is the concept of finding home, of home, of having yeah. a home, of being at home. We're in the middle of this homelessness or unhoused crisis here in Victoria, Yarra Council have announced recently, just this morning, that they have some new initiatives where they will approach every single person in the city of Yarra who is homeless, unhoused, um, and try and find some appropriate accommodation. Pie in the sky, I hope it all 
comes true. In Brisbane, you've got a situation where they have ceased uh, telling families who are living in tents and cars in parks to move on because there's nowhere else for them to go. That's true. So, And this book has been spoken about um, as a book about mothers and daughters, which also in its early stages um, was attempting to raise some funds for that cause um, for mothers and daughters, for unhoused people. There's something that you know about being unhoused that you've gleaned that I think it would be good for everyone to know because the judgment is so easy to come by. Share a little of what you know that other people may not. I'll tell you, it, 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 here's what I know. It hinges on two emotions. It all hinges on two emotions, confusion and sorrow. And who hasn't felt those emotions? It's just their, their butt for the grace of God go I that I don't experience those on a regular, 24-7, consistent basis. And we must remember as a community that we're not allowed to exploit people who are going through confusion and are feeling deep sorrow. And by that, I mean people building buildings that squeeze the underprivileged out. I'm talking about, I'm also talking about gambling companies that prey on, on confusion and sorrow. I'm talking about alcohol companies that do it. And this, you know, it, it is up to us as a community to remember that who hasn't friggin' felt confusion and sorrow? I certainly have, you know, and, and, you know, when I, when we were kids, mate, like, we, dad raised us in that public housing home and it was like he, he was able to pay for that home for less than $100 a week because we were living in a community where we're so freaking lucky that we all decided as Australians that we are going to look out for each other. We're going to look out for the Dalton boys. And Trent Dalton is going to get to read Storm Boy in the back of that effing housing commission home. You know what I mean? And I just, and that changes everything. You know, that sparks so many things. And, mate, the, the cars are back at the 7-Elevens right across Brisbane. Mums and daughters in cars because it's near CCTV cameras and it's safe. And the tents are back at Musgrave Park and the tents are back by the river. And you're exactly right, Claire. They're not telling anyone to go because we can't solve it. And it used to be that you, you had three steps you had three steps to homelessness. It's not that anymore because the third step used to be you'd have to go on the social housing waiting list and maybe you, had, you got to wait six months. Well, now it's two years at least. And so it's this idea that um, we need to help those people who are feeling the confusion and sorrow and we have to remember that, that um, true community and the true spirit of love is absolutely giving some of yourself to a complete stranger. And, and you know, my... My, I've, I've felt that. Like, I've learned from that. What I'm talking about, I, I love this thing. I've been, I've been sort of, this thing in my mind kicking around is there's this other three-letter word starting with Y that I love just as much as yes. And it's you. It's you. Like, it's you. It's all of you. And I, I've felt it. Like, I've gone to these things and people have come back and said, I'm with you. I'm with you. Like that book was my mum. That book was my dad. And that sh that's what this is. You that's, know? This is the mirror. Oh, this is one of the mirrors. It's a mirror. That's, a, that's the mirror. Speaking of you, I want to know what kind of room you ideal, like you, what's your ideal writing room? So what is the room where you're like, I can write 
in this room and also what's the process, this question is, I'm mushing it. What's the process? What's your process when sitting down to begin to write a new novel? Yeah, I, room wise, I need, I need pictures of Fiona and my two daughters. All I need is though that and that could be, that could be anywhere. Um, and maybe a picture of Eddie Vedder on the right. Oh, you really love, yeah. Oh, big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. big. I yeah. could go deep. But I was going deep with your beautiful you. Marty. I was going deep with your I fella. I blame you. Yeah. Uh, he's like, man, I was yeah. going deep with him. Art of fighting. Like... We worked out that he was in Art of Fighting. He's in Art of Fighting, yeah. Freaking Round amazing. Of Round, of Round of applause for Melbourne Round of fighting, yeah. <laughs> and Eddie Vedder, yep, yep. <laughs> um, but he, the process is more important. Like, it's all, it's all interior. So you really do need pictures of inspired in, uh, people who inspire you on the wall. Is there a window? Is there a desk? Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Well, for this one, I took 250 pictures of Brisbane. So and every, every the, place oh. that you will read, hopefully if you choose to, you don't have to, but um, no read this fresh. book. No press. Um, <laughs> Why are you here, though, then? I, I, I walked every place in that book. Took a photograph, printed it out at Office Works, and filled my walls like it's like I'm chasing down a serial killer, and the serial killer is my story. Are there windows? No. There's a window. There's louvers. It's the kids' rumpus room. It's okay, like our house. Right, like right. Fee and I are talking about doing this amazing office where it's like this deep blue, and there's like it. It looks like sort of one of those funky bars that hipsters go to and stuff. And we're never gonna get it done. But it's like so. I'm just always right in this rumpus room. But the process is, is what matters most. And what I do every morning, I try and go for a run or whatever, and I have this boiled egg on avocado and toast. Fucking high and achiever, what? <laughs> <laughs> what it doesn't it always now? happen like all that. All right, all right. No, tell, us tell us the ideal. Tell us the ideal. But the key yeah. thing, the key thing is I, I do this thing. It's like a writing ritual where I pause and I think about the life I would have if I didn't meet Fiona. And it scares the shit out of me. No pressure, Fiona. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. And I just see this vision of me eating Red Rooster chips, drinking bourbon and watching the movie Platoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it scares the shit out of me. And then I just go, and now it's a rush. And then, and then, and then my own fear, my fear turns into like a writing electricity. Ooh. So when you read my stuff on the page, if it feels a bit strange and a bit, sort of bouncy it's because it's that feeling that's, that's the feeling and it's just like gratitude just going geez that could have ended up badly yeah on that note and we're coming to the end of our precious time together but you're so generous with your stories and your vulnerability with all of us and it means a lot so thank you uh this question comes from were there points in your life before meeting your wife that gave you more hope for your future than what you saw in the mirror <gasps> what? Who? Like a genius. Who put, you got a job. You put your you hand up. Job, did that. <laughs> that's we upvoted. That is an unbelievably beautiful. You have to have a massive freaking heart to ask a question so beautiful. So thank you, big-hearted stranger out there. Um. Okay, I'll tell you this story. Um. All right. Mum goes down. Um. She's doing her time. No one's visiting her, Claire. Um, she's in Boggo Road Women's. Her, the love of, generally, the only man she really genuinely cared about was across in the Boggo Road Men's. Um, he wasn't visiting her. He wasn't the monster. No, he sorry, was, he no, wasn't. He, Thank you. That's really yeah, sweet. I, I didn't want to. He, he yeah, wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't the monster, yeah. Well, 
this is the thing we've got to remember about a female pr the women prisoners and about how you know um, they're extremely vulnerable when they come out and go to these halfway houses and they get preyed upon she met her monster in a halfway house who you know um, but this guy no no this guy was decent you know and uh, look at his issues don't get yeah, me wrong yeah, yeah, I will yeah. never glorify a freaking heroin dealer because I've seen the other side of where that goes too but but she's in there right and dad's not taking us up because she's down like she like and and he's he's saving us from having to see her like that and i i appreciate him doing that like it, she was low mate like she was low and there's only one person who visits her and that's escaped former bogo road convict slim halliday the houdini of bogo road um spent 30 years in bogo road men's prison uh, escaped that inescapable place twice and in the 1980s, our guy, this guy I'm telling you about, Lyle, um, gave him odd jobs to do around our house. And I call him my babysitter, but he wasn't really. Like, he was kind of just a guy who just hung around our house. And while the boys went to school, we hung out in his freaking Toyota and stuff. And he was just a beautiful man. And I loved the guy, right? Even though he did some dark things. Um, Mum's inside. Only one man visits her. And it's Slim Halliday. And it's the full glass screen. And he's like, hey, um, I know you're down. And I know that a mum's lag, a mother of four's lag is tougher than a f effing killer who's doing 40 years because you've got love and you've got sons out there, right? He's saying this. He's saying this, Claire. This guy read every book there was to read in the prison library. He's a freaking philosopher. He's like, Please remember this. This place, it has already taken your dignity. So forget that. It's taken your pride. Forget that. But there is one thing that it will never take, and it is the pilot light that still burns inside you, and it will never go out if you hold on to the love of your boys. Mm. And you will get out... And that fucking light will burn again as bright as you could ever possibly imagine. Thank God for Slim, huh? That's Slim Halliday. And never write off someone who, who's looking for a chance at redemption. Please never write off a single mum. And it's just, my, my mum's fucking firing, Claire. Yeah. She fires now. Like, she's yeah. just this great grandma. She friggin... She, she had this job for like 20 years, recently retired. She was the most loved member of that friggin' workplace. She worked for an insurance company. And one day she walks in and knocks on the friggin' boss's door and says, I've got this young son, I'm sorry. He's written a book about the 1980s. <laughs> and you know what happens though? Guess what? what? The boss reads it and he says, I read that friggin' book. And I value you even more now. Wow. That's what people can do. That's the and kind of boss you want, huh? That's it. And, and that's where hope comes from me. It just comes from just the most unexpected places, you know, and that, that's a moment of hope that, you know, I can only take hope from, from this woman who, you know, who does get out and then, you know, all that stuff in that book, group hug, all that, that's so real. That all happened, you know, that all, uh, you know, I, I've seen it. I've seen, I've seen the hope of family win. I've seen, I've seen love win. And that's where, that's where hope comes from for me.
Trent Dalton, you've won again with this one. <laughs> you really have. Thank you again. Hope has won. It's one of those stories about difficult things where you walk out feeling good about life. That's how I felt. Thank you to all of you for coming. And thank you um, to everyone who supports things like this in a city like ours. This is a fine city to live in. We know Brisbane so beautifully through your books, Trent, but we're so proud to have someone like you come into our city and, um, you know, just just let us let us into this life. Trent Dalton, when you look in the mirror now, <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, no, what are you going to make me cry or something. What are you, what are you? <laughs> no, but, uh, but I would love to hear. We started with hearing who you saw when you were 12. Tell me who you see now. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I see a man who gets still I'll – go, I'll go back to our hotel and I'll look in the mirror and I'll, I'll doubt everything I said tonight and I'll – I'll hate myself for saying too much and this I'll worry. reassuring for all of us because we all <laughs> feel this way. Oh, and, and, you know, but you know the coolest thing? Uh, you know, I reckon Fee might slip into the mirror beside me. I've seen that happen, Claire, and she'll put a freaking hand on my shoulder and she'll just give me a little pat and go, all right, all right, there, there. You know, like that. Fee, you're my new inner champion. <laughs> like, I'm going to... No, seriously, and, and I will freaking it. like that. And, 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 and then... You know, so who I see, you know, and we were talking about oh, your beautiful best bud, one of your best buds. Yeah, D. Deep. Yeah, sorry. Honestly, I could not have spoken to a better human being before coming on here. And you and only had five minutes with her. I've had 40 years. Like, uh, she's the best. She's good. She's well, like a fee. We got talking about disembodied voices in the nighttime when you got your sibling when Fuck, you're 12. You got, how long? Five we went minutes. Deep. We went around. deep. She's amazing. Marty was there. Yeah. But, but we both got talking about how, like, like I'm a total extroverted introvert and any of this, any of this nonsense you hear from me is just total defense mechanism. And, and, but, but, but who I am, Claire, like who I see in the mirror is the guy who's going to get back up to Brisbane soon and just be a dad to these two girls who are waiting for us. And like, that's who I see. Like, I, and I really like that guy. You know what I mean? I, I, and, and, and like I do see 12 year old me and I like that kid. You know, I really like that kid because he's untouched. He's, he's just good. Like you'd like him, Claire. Oh, like yeah. you would have liked him. I reckon him. I would. He, yeah. he was a good kid, you know. And and that's I do see that still. And he, I'm still learning from him, you know. And I find that really, really beautiful. Yeah. So I sort of, I see this kind of 44 year old dad, and I see a 12 year old boy who fucking never would have believed any of this was possible. Mm. Would you thank Trent Dalton for his generosity today? You're amazing. I love you. Thanks, darling heart. Thank what you. an honour. See you out there, guys. Thank you. Love you so much, Melbourne. Thank you. Thank you to the Wheeler Centre. See you at the other events. Don't forget your wine, Dalton. Wait. You've been listening to Claire Bowditch in conversation with Trent Dalton, recorded on Thursday the 12th of October at Melbourne Town Hall as part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling series. Spring Fling was proudly supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria and the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund. Special thanks to event partner and official bookseller Readings and accommodation partner The Sofitel. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.